Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Jesus ascended in the Great Commission, found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus said, go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. He said, go and make disciples. Notice he didn't say, go and make converts. There's a reason for that. A disciple is someone who makes disciples. A convert, you can kind of look at as someone who might get saved and comes to know the Lord, trust in Christ, but they just really don't go anywhere. They don't share, they, you know, they just kind of stagnate. Go and make disciples, not converts. And again, there's a reason for that. Let's, let's take the city of Shadron, for example. The population of Shadron, Nebraska is approximately 5,000 people. 5,000. Now let's say that every year, a core group of us, a hundred of us, a core Core group makes 100 converts every year. They're saved, but they're never really taught how to follow Jesus and make disciples themselves. So every oh, it's it's a new one too. That's the color today. This is sad. Sorry, guys. We're having a lot of technical difficulties lately um, between this transmitter on my hip. And then the, uh, my laptop this morning, it was just a disaster. It won't find any internet or Bluetooth or nothing, so it was just a pain. Uh, so pray for that, please. That's frustrating. Electronics. Sometimes I think devil, the devil's in the electronics. But anyway, here we go. Okay, <laughs> um, so 5,000 people in Shadron. We've got a core group of 100 of us making 100 converts every year. You know how long it would take to reach 5,000 people doing it that way? 50 years. 50 years to reach Shadron. Now, if each of us, however, made one disciple, who in turn made another disciple, let's do the math. The math would look something like this. 100 People makes 100 disciples. So now we've got 200. So 200 then make 200 disciples. So just one, each, one, each of us just makes one disciple every year. So 200, 400, 800, 1,600, 3,200. We've got 6,400 people in six years. See, multiplication adds up a lot faster than addition, right? So that's why Jesus said, go and make disciples, not just converts. Now, that's not a very realistic, obviously. It's not realistic, but it demonstrates why Jesus said that. And today in the book of Acts, we're going to see, we're going to continue to see the discipleship, the, the heart that Paul has for discipleship as he revisits some of the churches that he has planted and he's going he's gonna to go back through these churches he's planted on the first and second missionary journeys, and he's going to continue to encourage them 
and strengthen them. And if we as the church today want to reach the world with the gospel, like Paul did, we have to get serious about discipleship. We have to get serious about strengthening and encouraging people who come to Christ. Okay, we need, we need strong, healthy churches that are serious about making disciples. And so that's the direction we're going to go with today's message, looking at some characteristics of a healthy disciple-making church. And we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 20, in the middle of Paul's third missionary journey following a riot from the tradesmen at Ephesus. So verse 1 through 5, After the uproar had ceased... Paul sent for the disciples, and when he had encouraged them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he uh, came to Greece, and there he spent three months, and when a plot was formed against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia, and he was accompanied by... So, so Peter of Berea, the son of Purus, and by Aristarchus and Segundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. Now these had gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. And so uh, first thing we see, first setting we see, is the return to Greece. Uh, he leaves Turkey on the west coast of Turkey, makes his way back up to uh, northern Greece, what we would call Macedonia, and uh, southern half of Greece, what they refer to as Greece here, um, is Achaia. But uh, it says he gives these churches here in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, much encouragement. This is what Paul's doing. He's traveling back to these churches. He's planted them, and he's encouraging them. And this, this word encouragement has a full range of meanings from rebuking to comforting to instruction appeal affirmation warning correction i mean it's just paul doing what a disciple maker does he's making disciples he's encouraging them he's discipling them strengthening their walk with jesus and that's really the theme in this chapter man this is so so man Paralyzed. I go. I like to use both hands here, so I'm frustrated. But I feel like a statue up here, just holding this thing. But I, no, I think I'll just keep going with it. But anyway, um, he's encouraging and he's strengthening these local churches and disciples. And you know, he he knew God's work today. This is what Paul understood. Paul understood that God's work today is primarily through the local church. Therefore, we need strong local churches. And that's what he's doing. He's strengthening the churches. Strengthening them. That's, 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 uh, this, is his, this is his task. This is what he sees as his task, to just make disciples, to strengthen disciples, to make more disciples so that we can reach more. Because, let's be honest, Paul's... Paul's got in his mind, we're going to see in this chapter, that he's not going to be around very much longer. Paul sees the end coming. He, he, he knows that his last visit to Jerusalem is coming up. And he wants to leave behind strong local churches that are going to continue to reach out and make disciples. And we also see Paul 
in just like full-on discipleship mode during this time period of his life. I mean, he is just, he's just, uh, just diehard pastor at this time. I mean, he's, he's, he's visiting local churches. He's writing letters to different churches from Macedonia. He'll write Second Corinthians from Achaia. Down in, in Corinth, he'll write to the Romans. I mean, he's just, he just doesn't stop. This guy's an animal for making disciples. And you probably don't remember this from last week, but because the, uh, the account of burning magic books, and remember seven men got beat up by this demoniac. <laughs> I, mean, I probably stole your attention. You probably missed this. But Luke revealed in verse 21 that Paul purposed to go to Jerusalem after passing through Macedonia and Achaia. And that's kind of interesting, right? Why, why go, if he wants to go to Jerusalem, why go to Macedonia and Achaia? Well, for one, he wanted to continue his discipleship work there. But secondly, he was going to collect an offering from these churches in Greece for the saints in Jerusalem. The, we might call the mother church, right? This, this highly Jewish church in Jerusalem. There's a generous gift that he wants to collect from the Gentile churches to bless the Jewish church that was going through a hard time, through persecution, and through famine. And so um, it's, it's a church that's having a rough time back there in Jerusalem. Romans 15, 25 through 27 says this, But now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor, among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. So, uh, have you guys ever thought about that? How indebted we are to the Jewish people for all of our spiritual blessings? You ever thought about that? You should read Ty Perry's uh, newsletter in your bulletins this morning. It's, it's fantastic. It's right along these lines that I'm talking here. See, through the Jews came the promises, right? The Abrahamic promise. Through the, through, the, through the Jewish people came the Savior. Our Messiah is Jewish. He's a descendant of Abraham. And then through the Jews came the Scriptures, right? It's... This verse, that verse there in Romans 15 has convicted me and I think our church to support Jewish ministry and to stand for Israel. This is why we, we support uh, individuals like Ty Perry reaching out to the Jewish, Jewish people because, I mean, if, if we, the Gentiles, have shared in spiritual things, we're indebted to minister to them, Jewish people, in material things, right? So anyway... Um, Paul, again, he wants to, to gather, he wants to collect an offering for the church in Jerusalem. It was symbolic, it was practical, it's going to help unify this now Jewish and Gentile church, but it's also going to help to meet some of their practical needs. And, and Paul said, on the first day of the week, Sunday, take up an offering so that when Paul arrives, he could present it to them. And um, anyway, I'm going somewhere with this. It's our first characteristic here. Number one, that a healthy church is going to be a generous church. A healthy church is a generous church. Uh, generous not just with money, but with time, with resources, with spiritual gifts. You know, it's just, we're just a generous people because God has been so generous with us. And this church here, 
The Shadron Berean Church is a generous church. I mean, I, I mean that when I say that. I'm not trying to butter you up. This is a smaller church, but you guys are just generous. I, I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't look at the, the, the paperwork that tells me who gave what, right? I don't know who gives what exactly. And I do that for a reason, so I don't start treating people impartially, right? Uh, <laughs> James chapter 3, is it? But um, anyway, all I see is I look at some of the totals, and I'm like, how does a, a little church like ours give so much to the Lord's work? It's amazing. And so I just praise you guys for that. You guys are incredibly generous, but at the same time, I'm going to, I'm going to, I had Thessalonians uh, come to mind this week, where Paul told the Thessalonians, you guys are amazing, but he says, excel still more. Excel still more. Continue to give of yourself, your, your, your time, your resources, your gifts. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I love this care ministry that we've got going on, because it's doing exactly that. It's challenging us to give of ourselves. And... Uh, Again, yesterday was a prime example. Uh, the whole time we're working on this garage, doing the siding, I just kept thinking, you know, it's, w it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. So you think, oh, I'm going to, it's such a sacrifice to give of myself and time and energy. And then you do it and you're like, boy, I was more blessed than the person that actually received this gift. Because it's just, it's, it's, a, it's neat to serve the Lord. Um, so after Macedonia... He travels south to Achaia for three months. He spends the winter here, uh, winter of 56, 57 A.D., and uh, he spends it in Corinth there. You saw it on the map on the southern portion of Greece. And Corinth, again, a church with, with many problems. If you read First and Second Corinthians, you know that. Um, they were in need of serious attention. And during this time in Paul's life at Corinth, during this winter, he writes a letter to the Romans and he says, I plan to visit you soon. And so he encourages them in the gospel as well. Um, so Paul, again, is just on in full-on full discipleship mode right now, making sure the churches he leaves behind are healthy because he's not going to be around forever. And it's also apparent that he doesn't work alone. He shares the burden of ministry with seven other men that are mentioned here. Did you see this, this list? of seven different men, different ages, from Macedonia, from Asia, that's the western province in Turkey, Asia Minor, and in Galatia, which would be central Turkey. And then to this list, you can also add Dr. Luke, the author, the, the man who wrote the book of Acts. Uh, he's called the beloved, beloved physician in Colossians 14. But he's the author, and he joins in again, and we can tell by the way... Um, he uses the word we, right? We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. Um, uh, the last time we saw we was back in chapter 16 when they went through Philippi. So we, we, we went to Philippi. After that, he starts to narrate differently. Luke's not including himself in the narrative. Well, they come back through Philippi. They pick up Luke, and now it's we again. We sailed. So just uh, a neat tidbit there just to help I understand who Paul is traveling with, and uh, again, book of Acts, eyewitness account, writing this down. So, um, Paul was planning to uh, go to Jerusalem, however, um, he'd learned about a plot to, uh, to kill him. I, Paul wasn't the only Jew planning to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. 
And uh, he, he becomes aware of a plot to kill him. They're probably going to kill him on the ship, throw him overboard uh, into the sea, to be honest. And so um, he knows the difference between trusting the Lord and taking foolish chances. So he decides, all right, well, we're going to go back up through Philippi, and uh, he'll make it there for the Feast of Pentecost, at least, which is uh, 50 days later. But um, now we're going to go look at uh, verses 7 through 16, communion at Troas, fellowship at Troas. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, an eight-day uh, Jewish festival in the springtime uh, that includes Passover. And it says, we reached them at Troas within five days. And we stayed there for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, uh, that's a reference to communion and fellowship, a fellowship meal, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message until midnight. Can you believe it? He prolonged his message until midnight. And you guys thought I preached a long time, right? Jeez. Actually, you know, if the apostle was only going to be here for one day like he was at Troas or where, you know, you guys, you guys would be here until midnight too, right? Listening to the apostle Paul, right? You'd be there until daybreak. And that's, that's, that's actually, Paul talks all through the night here. Look at this. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus, whose name means fortunate, by the way, or lucky. Um, just ironic. But he's sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. See, just like some of you. And as Paul kept on talking, Eutychus was overcome by sleep, and he fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Third floor falls to the ground and dies. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for he is still alive. And when Paul had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak, and then left. And they took away the boy alive and were greatly comforted. So, all right, we're back at Troas. This is the place of the Macedonian call. From earlier in the book of Acts, there's a church gathering here now on the first day of the week, and that should get your attention because the church is not meeting on the Sabbath, not on Saturday, but they're meeting on, a, on the first day of the week. Um, if that's a Roman reckoning, uh, that's going to be on Sunday, like as we know it. If it's a Jewish reckoning, it's still the first day of the week, but it could be Saturday night. Either way, it's the first day of the week, and so uh, it just gives us a clue as to um, uh, when the early church met. They weren't meeting on the Sabbath anymore, but on Sunday, which is called the Lord's Day or Resurrection Day, the day that Christ rose from the dead. Paul said, uh, uh, you know, let no one be your judge in respect to food, drink, festivals, or a Sabbath day. Uh, that's important because there's some out there who basically make it the mark of the beast to, if you worship on a Sunday. Paul says, let no man, that's the Seventh-day Adventists, by the way, let no man be your judge in respect to a Sabbath day. Could we meet on the Sabbath? Could we meet yesterday? Well, yeah, sure. We got the freedom of Christ to meet on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday if we want, right? Uh, are we gonna? No, probably not. <laughs> we'll stick with Sunday. But I just throw that out there because it is, uh, it is, it is a question that goes around in your minds. But uh, anyway, their gathering here is pretty informal. It's mostly just Paul talking and talking and talking and talking. 
all through the night until one man falls asleep. A young man, a teenager, no surprise, right? Uh, falls asleep in the window. But seriously, it's the third story. There's a lot of people. Heat rises, right? They've got, it says many lamps were burning, right? Sucking the oxygen out of the room, probably heating things up a bit. It's just stuffy, small room. And uh, he apparently knew he was falling asleep because he goes to the window to get some fresh air. Still, it, he was overcome. And uh, it's an encouraging passage. I'll just say that. Uh, encouraging because... Paul's a man of many words. I'm not the only one. And uh, he was serious about teaching the word and making disciples. So serious that he would teach through the night to make sure that these, these Christians were grounded in the word of God. It's, it's pretty neat. Um, it's also encouraging to know that, hey, people fell asleep on the Apostle Paul too. Um, because some of you guys fall asleep on me sometimes, and you have to get up and stand at the back of the room, right? Um, some people, you know, they think it's their spiritual gift to the body of Christ to sleep. Because even everybody needs rest, right? Even the, even the body of Christ. Just kidding, it's not a spiritual gift. But, I wish it was. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you guys. My old pastor, I fell asleep on him several times. You know Why? I worked midnights, and so I'd get off at work at 7.30 in the morning, and I'd go to church, and then I was just, honestly, I drooled once. I'm not even kidding. My head, I was, it was a bad time in my life. But it's not sleeping bodies that bother me, it's sleeping souls. Someone can be physically exhausted and sleeping, but still be spiritually alive, right? Spiritually awake, walking with the Lord. Others can be spiritually awake, Sitting in church, but just spiritually sleeping. So, Paul says in Romans 13, 11, and 12, he says, wake up, right? Because a Christian, even a Christian can be spiritually sleeping if they're not walking with the Lord. But uh, again, the text says this kid died, and uh, Luke's a doctor, so I trust him in that. And the natural reading indicates this kid died, but he was brought back to life by Paul. It says that Paul fell on him. What's that remind you of when you read that? If you're a student of the Old Testament, that should remind you of Elijah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He laid on this young man's body and, and prayed to the Lord, and, and this kid rose from the dead again. So it reminds us of Elijah. Elisha, it reminds us of Jesus. Jesus rose a young man from the dead as they were carrying him to bury him, basically, uh, in a coffin. And uh, uh, Peter, Peter also rose uh, I think it was her name was Dorcas, from the dead. It was earlier in the book of Acts. But um, again, this is here. Luke's recording this for us just so that we have an idea of the person that Paul was, the work that God had called him to. Paul is just as powerful as these Old Testament prophets. I mean, we look at Elijah like the most powerful Old Testament prophet. Here's Paul doing the same thing that he did. Here's here's. Peter and Paul being paralleled again, both leaders in the early church. Peter, the leading apostle to the Jews. Paul, the leading apostle to the Gentiles. And then, again, there's that parallel with Jesus' ministry. Acts is the book of... It's, it's the Acts of Jesus Christ through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. So even though Jesus has ascended to heaven, he still works through the apostles. 
And uh, this, is, this is hilarious. This is just kind of a funny account, isn't it? This young man is brought back to life. What do they do? They call it a, call an end to the meeting. No, they get up, they have a midnight snack, and then they, Paul teaches until daybreak. It's just, it's just kind of comical for me. Like just, but at the same time, you see the seriousness of how much they appreciated the teaching of the Word of God. They were hungry, man, like for the Word, enough to stay up all night listening. Paul spends every last minute he can discipling these people. And uh, again, this, this may be his last time with them. He wants them grounded in the Word. And that's the second characteristic that I have for us of a healthy church. A healthy disciple-making church is grounded in the Word. They can sit under the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God. They want to. They, they eat it up, you know. That just reminds us of it, of our, our big church vision, doesn't it? What's our big church vision? It involves a tree. Deep roots, bearing fruit, right? If we're going to be, we're going to fulfill our vision, we have to be a church rooted, grounded in the Word of God. Disciples of Jesus need to be grounded in the Word so that they can make disciples, so that they can teach others. But verse 13 through uh, 16. But, but we went ahead to the ship. That's Luke writing. We and the disciples, right? The other disciples mentioned, seven of them. And set sail for Assos intending from there to take Paul on board. For that was what he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. Sailing from there, we arrived the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we sailed over to Samos, and on the following day we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to lose time in Asia, for he was hurrying if, if it might be possible for him to be in Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. And so Luke's just given us some, some general dis- travel descriptions here. It's very typical for ships back then to hop, you know, one day at a time, just from port to port. It was tricky to navigate. Remember these, they don't have engines. They're, <laughs> they're using the wind. They're, you know, they're, uh, they're green ships, right? Wind powered. So, uh, Never mind. You guys didn't even laugh at that? I know. Uh, it was tricky to navigate these rocky coastlines, so they're just hopping from port to port along the west coast of Turkey. Interestingly, though, Paul, the, the guys hop on a ship and, and sail 20 miles around this cape, and Paul decides he's going to walk it. Paul just walks it alone. And we don't know why. Luke doesn't say why. Uh, maybe some disciples were walking with him, and he continued to disciple them, or... Honestly, I think Paul knows this is his last time to have a chance alone and walk with the Lord. He's on a prayer walk, is what I think. He's heading to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to be arrested. It's going to be a rough couple of years ahead. And I think this is just him taking a prayer walk alone and getting his mind. He's, he's getting his, his game face on, getting his mind in gear, preparing for what's, what's coming up. And uh, sometimes don't you need to do that? Don't you need to go on a prayer walk and just talk with the Lord? I know I do. So anyway, he, uh, he skips Ephesus because he wants to get this uh, gift to Jerusalem on time for Pentecost. And uh, it's here that it says uh, he calls the Ephesian elders to him. We have a little pastor's conference in Miletus. Uh, verse 17, from Miletus, we're going to finish up the chapter here. From Miletus, he sent word to Ephesus and called to himself the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know 
from the first day that I set a foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was beneficial and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that chains and afflictions await me. But, here's my favorite verse, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly to the gospel of God's grace. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all people. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And shepherd the church of God among you. Not sparing the flock. Oh, sorry, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands served my own needs and the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this way, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all and they all began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. So, this is a, a quite the passage. I'll be honest with you, I thought that when this text arrived, when we came to this text, I would spend an entire sermon on it because I cherish it so much. But I'm going to do a lot of summarizing here for us. Because it goes along with this emphasis we have of just strengthening the churches. Strengthening the churches, right? If a, if a church is going to be strong, what's it mean? It needs strong godly leadership to guide it, right? Paul calls the Ephesian elders uh, the, the, you know, it's interesting. He calls them to himself, but you see here, um, they're referred to as elders and shepherds and overseers. So three, three different titles for these men, these church leaders. And I say men because they're masculine in, in their form, these words. Um, presbyteros for elders, that's where we get our term 
Presbytery. You ever heard of the Presbyterian Church? Right? That's where we get that word from, a masculine. Um, the word shepherd, poimino. And then overseers, episkopos. You ever heard of episcopalian? Right? That's where we get the word bishop from. So we, this is a really helpful passage for understanding what biblical church leadership should look like. An elder, which would be a shepherd. What shepherd? Uh, what is, you know what pastor in Spanish means? Uh, shepherd, right? <laughs> Pastor, a shepherd. So this is uh, elder, shepherd, and overseer are all the same thing. That's, this was revolutionary for me, having grown up under a priest. There's no priest presiding over a New Testament church. We're all priests in the sense that we intercede for God on behalf of people, right? The way we share the gospel. Okay, so we're the uh, elder, bishop, pastor. Um, it's, it's all the same thing. Churches are led by, the, my preferred term, elders. They're elders, and they're, that's plural, not just one man. You ever hear of a bishop presiding over a church? Well, that's not biblical. It's elders with, from within the church presiding over a church, giving that church guidance and direction. Just men uh, who are faithful, who are humble. You see the qualifications for an elder in First Timothy and Titus. These are faithful, humble men who have experience and they're able to teach. And like shepherds, they're going to guide the flock of God. They're going to feed it. They're going to protect it. And uh, they keep the church healthy because um, that's God's design. That's God's design. A healthy church is a guided church. They have godly leadership. What does that leadership look like? Well, Paul pointed to himself, actually, as the model, as a, as a model. We see Paul's example as a good shepherd uh, mentioned at the beginning of this passage and at the end, he says, I was with you the whole time. Right? Basically, you, you saw my life, you saw the way I lived. A leader has to live by example. He has to be a model. He lived an exemplary, exemplary open life before the Ephesians for three years. They watched this guy. He was an example. He was living as an example for them. He served the Lord with humility and tears and trials. He calls himself a bond servant. You know what a bond servant is? It's a, it's a slave. It's like a voluntary slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw himself as a slave before God, just carrying out his duty, his divine task. Uh, and then he says, I didn't shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God to you, both publicly and privately. In the public, or is it from house to house? He says, I didn't water down the message. Okay, I didn't give you a bunch of cute, cheesy little stories all the time and, and, and just you know, make you feel good about yourself and tickle your ears. Paul says, I refused. I didn't withhold any truth in the Word of God. I didn't shrink back. It says actually that he, he helped them understand the whole purpose of God from eternity past to eternity future he helped them understand the purposes and the will of god and this this is why guys this is why we go through the bible the way we do slowly but surely because over the long haul that's what's going to make for the strong and healthy church that i'm after i want you guys grounded in the word i know that sometimes it's hard to sit here and go painstakingly take a year just over a year to go through the book of acts 
But we're doing it because that's what's going to, in the long run, give us the, the strongest, healthiest church. And it's going to keep me from preaching on things that I want to talk about. Okay? Do you think I wanted to talk about burning magic books and demons beating up seven guys last week? No, I just would have never chosen that. But as we slowly and steadily go through the Word of God, you're getting the whole counsel of God. Not just what I want to talk about. Okay? So, not just my hobby horses. Because I have hobby horses. I could preach on them. But let's see what the Word of God has to say, right? Now, he also didn't count his life as dear to himself. Verse 24, he lived with eternity in mind. He was willing to die for the gospel. Are we, do we have an understanding of the gospel that is like that? That we're willing to give our lives for it? He was willing to die for the gospel. He had a singular focus, a single desire. It shouldn't just be an apostle's desire. It should be every one of us should have this desire to finish the God-given course or race that He has given us. What's your race? What course has God given you? Like what lane are you in? You know, what, what race has God put before you that He wants you to run? Not the person next to you. What does he, how does He want you to run? You know, and, he, and the, to the finish line, right? Here's, here's, here's what Paul said. Here's how, here's how Paul described his race. Testifying to the gospel of God's grace. He summed up his entire ministry by that phrase right there. To testify to the gospel of God's grace. And he was committed to it. Committed in a way that we don't, we don't even understand commitment. I don't even feel like I understand discipleship. When I look at the Apostle Paul's life, I just feel like I fall so short of what this man, the, the example that this man set for us. But that's our main task. I think each one of us could say that it's our job to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Commitment. Committed to that. Are you committed to that? You heard about one young man, you know, commitment's lacking these days. You heard about one young man, he wrote a love letter to his girlfriend, you know, to express his commitment to her, and he said, My dear, I would climb the highest mountain, I would swim the widest stream, and I would cross the burning desert and die at the stake for you. And then he wrote, P.S., I'll see you Saturday if it doesn't rain. <laughs> commitment, right? Are you committed to the gospel of God's grace? Committed. As a model shepherd, Paul turns to the Ephesian elders. He exhorts them to shepherd the flock by being, number one, both on guard for themselves and then for the flock. If they're going to guard the flock, an elder, if an elder is going to guard the flock, he has to guard himself. He has to guard his own heart and mind first. He has to shepherd, he has to learn to shepherd himself to feed his own heart and mind so that he can then do the same for the church. And that's basically what a shepherd does, isn't it? I mean, talking about a real shepherd here with lambs, he's going to do two main tasks. He's going to, number one, he's going to feed them, and then secondly, he's going to protect them. Food and protection, food and protection, food and protection, and it's, it's a sacred task. Look at verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. See, it's not the elder's church, it's God's church, which he purchased with his own blood. And there's a really neat uh, uh, just proof text for Christ's deity here. The God, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. God purchased the church with his own blood. What's that tell you about Jesus? 
He's God. God became a man, shed his blood on the cross for you and me. Isn't that amazing? Contemplate that. If, if you're here today, you don't know Jesus Christ. You need to know. You, you don't know if you're going to heaven or hell. You need to know that you can't get to heaven by being good enough. You can't get to heaven by being religious enough. By getting baptized, giving money to the church, doesn't matter. You need to know the only way you're going to heaven is by putting your faith, your trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. He shed his blood for you. And that's a perfect payment for your sin. And uh, if you'd like to talk more about that, um, I'm available after the service. Um, but uh, such a sacred form of down payment for the church makes the responsibility of the elders sacred as well. So, notice too, again, this is something God calls these men to. Church leadership. This is not work your way up the ladder type of stuff. This is not like, you know, I, I really want the limelight, so I think I'll, I'll, I'll try to be a church. No, this is something, this is a holy thing. This is something God calls people to. Trust me, I did not choose this my, myself to be up here. I've told you several times, I was perfectly content sitting in a John Deere 8400 tractor, you know, running a grain cart, plowing the ground. And I'm perfectly fine by myself and not standing in front of a bunch of people talking. Okay. Um, this is something God calls you to. And he makes it undeniable when he does. You say, how do, how do I know if God calls me to this? You'll know. You'll know in time. But um, keep praying about it. Um, anyway, God gifted them for it. Uh, Paul, the church, recognized it. And the main way, again, that this, these elders are going to continue to shepherd the flock is by feeding it and protecting it. And that's going to center around the gospel. Paul calls it the gospel of grace in verse 24. And then he calls it the word of his grace in verse 32. The gospel of grace and the word of grace. And Paul's ministry to testify to the gospel of God's grace. Grace, grace, grace. Don't ever forget that. The reason that Paul considered his ministry testifying to the gospel of God's grace is because there were so many false teachers out there, so many Judaizers, he would call them, who fought against grace. They didn't understand that salvation was a free gift offered to us by faith in what Jesus has done. Paul, in his letters, writes time and time again, trying to convince people that heaven's free. It's a free gift. Because there's so many people, it's human nature to want to try and be good enough to, for heaven. And we have to tell ourselves constantly, it's a free gift. It's only by grace. So preaching the gospel of grace protects the flock, and it feeds the flock. So... If a flock understands God's grace in Christ, everything else, every other religion kind of comes into focus. It's revealed for what it is, right? Because only authentic Christianity preaches salvation is a free gift by God's grace. Everything else is obviously a false gospel. According to Galatians 1, 6 through 9, there is no other gospel. So... True shepherds are going to seek to ward off. They're going to want to alienate. They're going to even excommunicate any wolf undermining the gospel of grace by turning it into a gospel of works uh, through moralism or legalism or some sort of other performance-based jargon. I mean, this is it, man. Wolves, wolves are going to deny the gospel of grace. 
somehow, in one way or another, they're either going to add to what Jesus did or they're going to try and take away from it. It's denying the gospel of grace. And uh, by the way, I think wolves prefer to dress up as shepherds, not just as sheep. They want an influence. And it doesn't matter, guys, if we have someone come into our midst and they're teaching something other than grace. It doesn't matter how nice they are. It doesn't matter if they seem well-intentioned. It doesn't matter if they carry the same, uh, I don't know, they carry a Bible in their hand. It doesn't matter if they, if they believe what we believe on every other doctrine. If they do not have a biblical definition of grace, which means free, it's the responsibility of the elders to correct them, and if they don't receive correction, to excommunicate them, alienate them. And that's hard, because a lot of times they seem really nice and friendly, and we like them. But that's the main job of a shepherd. Protect the gospel. And then protect the flock by protecting the gospel. Secondly, preach the gospel of grace also feeds the flock. Look at that, how he says that. Um, he entrusts them to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. So just by preaching the gospel here this morning, you're built up. You're built up. You are... You're sanctified. You're being sanctified. You're being encouraged. and um, We just have to keep the gospel of grace at the forefront of our minds all the time. And if we don't, you know what we're going to become? This place is going to become one of two things. A cult, where we're preaching a gospel of works. Basically, we'll become emissaries of Satan if we forget the gospel of grace. Or number two, we'll become a Mexican restaurant. Because that just seems to be what happens with churches that forget what they're called to do, right? Uh, we'll become a country club first, and then we just kind of hang out, and we don't even know what we're doing here anymore. And then uh, after that, we'll close our doors, and then somebody will buy this church building and turn it into a restaurant. How many times have you seen that? Right? So we have to keep the gospel in focus, a church that is rooted in the gospel of grace and then sharing it with others. And I can't help again but think of our church's big vision of healthy fruit trees. That's our vision. Deep roots bearing fruit. It's a healthy fruit tree. A healthy church is rooted in the word of God, in the word of God's grace, and it's also bearing fruit by sharing the gospel of God's grace with others. You see, a tree isn't just supposed to be a tree by itself. It, it puts on fruit that has seeds in it. And those seeds drop and sprouts other trees. Right? So I just encourage us this morning I challenge you uh, to, to, to live out our vision by praying about just discipling one person. Look around in your life, find someone like, that's not as far down the road in their walk with the Lord as you, and build a relationship with them. Seek, seek to disciple somebody. That's our job, to make disciples, teaching others to obey all that the Lord's commanded. And if, and if you've never been discipled, you want to be discipled, sometimes you just got to ask. Pray about it. And then ask someone older than you, someone who you think is a mature in the Lord, and just ask them to disciple you. Thank you.